All right. Is everybody excited to hear what the Lord has to say? Me too. I can't wait to hear what I say. Man. I am excited. Welcome. If you're new here uh, or it's been a while, maybe since you've been here, we are teaching our way through the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the last book of the Bible. It's also probably the most misunderstood book of the Bible. It's probably mostly misunderstood in large part because people don't teach on it, because it has words like wrath and judgment and tribulation. And these aren't warm and fuzzy things to talk about in church, so we often don't get to hear about it. But that leaves people with this impression that the revelation of Jesus Christ is uh, is this scary book. It's this dark and foreboding book. The storm clouds are gathering kind of thing. And, it, and a lot of people just don't even want to pay attention to it. But that's not what it is. And that's why I had such a burden to teach uh, my way through this chapter or through this whole book because it's not scary. This shouldn't be. It's God giving us a lifeline. He's saying these things are coming. But don't worry Because I have sent you a lifeline, and it's just up to you whether you grab that lifeline or not. Now, if you're one of those rebellious people who waits until the last second and you refuse steadfastly to grab that lifeline, like we'll see many people do ultimately refuse flat out to accept that gift, and there is a price to pay for that. So, yes, when it comes down to it, uh, there is a price to pay for our refusal to turn to Jesus. But that's not what this book is about. This book is about hope. It's a book that should point to the fact that our God is sovereign. And not only does he know what we're going through now, but he's always known what we will go through. And he has made a way every step of the way for us to not hit this gathering storm without any ammunition, without any knowledge, without any power to go through it. And he has given us every single thing we need to navigate what lies ahead. So that's why I'm excited about it. Now, I want to ask you before we even go any further, who is ready or willing, put it differently, who's willing to have their preconceived notions about what this says challenged? Do you have an open mind and an open heart to say, I want to hear what the Word says? I know what I've been taught. I know what I think. But I want to hear what the Word says. Are you willing? Then I'm going to pray for that before we get going. Do you join me? Heavenly Father, we just pray for open hearts and minds. Lord, and when we lay our hearts and minds open and we're receptive to what you have for us, God, you can move in mighty ways. And I pray right now that regardless of the words that come out of my mouth or the way that I deliver this message, Lord, let it be received the way that you intend for it to be received. Let it be life-giving. Let it be a revelation of Jesus Christ and his heart, and your heart for his people. So, Father, we just open ourselves up to you. Lord, have your way. Let us walk out of here changed tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So this is, and I say this every week, this is the only book that starts out, chapter 1, verse 3, saying you're blessed if you read it, blessed if you hear it. It specifically says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. But then it also goes and says, and who heeds these things. Meaning you need to hear it, but you also need to take it to heart and let it change how you, how you live your life. So that's the goal of this whole thing. So that being said, I'm going to read through every single word 
in this, in this book. If you come here or listen to our podcasts, you're going to hear every single word in the revelation of Jesus Christ spoken here in this church. This week, we're in chapter 13, which is amazing. But before we get there, let's go back to last week really quick. Last week, we saw, we saw uh, Mother Israel getting ready to give birth to this child who will be Jesus. We saw this beast trying to snatch away this baby before this baby even has a chance to be born and fulfill its destiny. This beast is trying to snatch this baby away and ultimately kill this baby. But before that can happen, the baby is taken up into heaven. The mother is whisked away to safety, and this enrages the beast. It enrages this beast so much so that he instantly he wages war with Michael, the archangel, and his, and his angelic armies only ultimately to be defeated, to be defeated and cast down to earth. No more access to heaven where he can stand before the throne and accuse us day and night. He is cast to earth, but this enrages him even more, and he is in his death throes, and he knows it. And so like a wounded animal, he starts to thrash, and he lashes out with desperation at God's people who are left. And this is where we find ourselves. So if we go back, the very last verse of chapter 12 reads like this. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Meaning everyone who's left on earth is now squarely in his sights and he is enraged and he is going after them. This is where we pick up this week. So chapter 13, it's verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read it all to you now. I use the New American Standard. If you want to follow along, you can. Follow along in your version. It might be just a little bit different. I'm going to talk about a little bit of that in just a minute. But otherwise, just listen along. Revelation 13, 1 through 18. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horn... And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast." They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven." It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast. 
those whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the heavens to the earth in the presence of men. And he, re, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to sell or buy except, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man." And his number is 666. Mm. Very, very famous, at least the last several verses. Probably heard that in many, many contexts. But have we really taken the time to see what's going on? Or like me, do we kind of fall into that, well, the movies show it like this. And if you go on the internet and Google it, you see this. I'm going to I'm going to show you what my study has shown me and what I feel like the Holy Spirit has revealed to me as we go through this. Let's start right in. Let's jump right into Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Let's start right out there. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Jump right into how important it is to understand that the translation of the Bible that you have makes a difference, makes a big difference, and we need to really choose carefully, and if, if not, we at least need to be aware that there are differences. First thing, your version, depending on what version you're reading, might include the first half of this, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. That might be part of 1217, might be part of the earlier chapter. Probably about half of the translations have that as part of the, of the earlier chapter. Here's something more important. If you have the King James or the New King James, rather than it saying, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, it says, I stood on the sand of the seashore. Meaning the Apostle John who's having this vision. That to me is a big difference. The key being, if we go back to the original Greek translations, we see that it is very clearly um, the beast stood, not I. It's the beast stood. But so just some of these differences that we see translation to translation, we just need to be aware of them. It doesn't make one better or worse. Just be aware. So let's go into the, who this beast is. Now, this beast is, again, this beast is the Antichrist, okay, that we were introduced to back in chapter 11. That's who this beast is. He was born in an atmosphere of the world that was desperate for a solution. They were having all kinds of problems that they were going through, and they were desperate for somebody to step forward and save them. Now, for the church, we're looking for our Messiah, right? We're looking for a Savior. But even those who didn't believe in Jesus, they're still looking for somebody to stand up take control of things and help us. This is the atmosphere they're in when the Antichrist rises to power. 
This is why so many people are, are willing to just jump in with him and his cause and not look too carefully at what lies behind the curtain. So we look at some of the imagery there, the, the ten horns, seven heads. We look at this, and we wonder what exactly uh, they're talking about there. Actually, if we jump forward into Revelation 17, it talks about that. Revelation 17.10 describes the seven heads. It says, they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So it's laying right out there. Five are previous kings who have fallen. One's a current king, and one hasn't even come yet. So we're looking for that. The ten horns uh, are again in Revelation 17, verse 12. It says, the ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, meaning a short time, not one literal hour. And then the blasphemous names, of course, we know that going all the way back, many, many kings, especially in the time of Rome uh, in Persia, they declared themselves to be gods, okay? Going all the way back to Egypt, if you were a king, you declared yourself a god. And so that's the blasphemous names they're talking about. These kings will all declare that they are God in the flesh. So that's the blasphemous names. Revelation 13, 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne with great authority. That's a lot of imagery, right? Let's talk about that. It's very, very clear, actually, if you go back in the times when John was writing this, it was very well understood that the leopard represented the Grecian Empire, the Empire of Greece. Okay, we saw that. The, the bear represents the Persian Empire, Okay? And the last part, the lion, was a typical emblem or symbol of the Babylonian Empire. So we see Greece, Persia, and Babylon coming together all in one great beast. And this beast is symbolizing then the, the Roman Empire, who gained strength and power and authority from all of those that had been conquered and had come before. This is the Roman Empire. So this, this is pointing very clearly to this beast having taken attributes from these previous empires and now being personified in the Roman Empire. That's what we see. So, oh, an interesting side note here. If you like to go back and just, just marvel at how amazing the Bible is. If you go back to Daniel, remember Daniel is the Old Testament apocalyptic literature. It's the Old Testament revelation, right? But it was, it was at least 500 plus years prior to this Daniel chapter 7 describes these very same beasts. Daniel sees these beasts. Interesting thing, though, he sees them in reverse order. He sees them in reverse order, being because Daniel is looking forward at these beasts, and here we see John looking back. So they're actually just switched in order. Just an amazing thing how something little like that can show you how God is sovereign and has always been in control, and, and there's nothing that doesn't line up. So just a side note. Now, what's important to know, though, is that these kingdoms were all very clearly empowered by Satan to be instruments of his will to wreak havoc on, on the Jews, to wreak havoc on the, this budding Christian uh, group, so they were all empowered by Satan. Very important to know as we go forward. Revelation 13, 5. 
I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, this head that had been slain and then healed, fatal wound was healed, that very clearly, again, points to the Roman Empire. Roman Empire, we know somewhere around, around 500 or so AD, was overthrown by barbarians and basically killed off, but it didn't die. And in fact, we see today it's starting to be reborn. And this points to, many people point to this verse exactly as this going to be, the, the Antichrist is going to be exemplified by the Roman Empire being reborn with new power. And then, of course, they point to the Pope as the authority behind this new Roman Empire. Again, just one of many theories that people draw, but this is where they get that from. What we do know for sure is that the whole earth is going to be captivated by this new beast, and they will worship him. Okay, we know that for sure. Saying things like, who can possibly stand against him? He is so powerful. They'll know that. They'll know that he'll have a smooth tongue, He'll be able to talk people because at first it's not a military conquest, right? He's talking people into, into joining legion with him. says he'll do it for three and a half years if he did the math. This, this beast is given authority by the dragon of Satan over all nations. We know that that's where we're going to stand. So moving on, Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay, what this means is that those Christians who are on earth at this time are going to refuse to worship him. They will refuse to worship him. And this is going to be quite a battle at this time. But we know this is exactly what's happening. The cool thing about this, Satan's trying to steal away everything that God has ever done. Everything that Jesus ever gave himself for us, for the devil has been against from day one, trying to undo it. This very clearly says, if your name is written in the book of life, Satan cannot steal it away. He cannot steal your salvation. To me, that deserves an amen. But that's just me. Revelation 13, verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Okay, this is referencing, if you go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 15, it's talking about giving a prophecy against a rebellious Israel, and that judgment is going to come. In other words, this is, this is a foretold conclusion that judgment will come. And there's nothing you can do about it at this point. And he's just referencing back to that with a reminder. Almost everyone left on the earth at this point will be worshiping the Antichrist. There's going to be a very small number of those whose names are written in the book of life who are still around on earth at this point. But they just have to be faithful. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Meaning, now is the time when the rubber meets the road persevere and have faith because there's one more trial coming, one more major trial. And here it comes, Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast. One wasn't enough. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. 
This is another incredible beast. But this one, you notice two horns like a lamb. Just kind of two little, little buds. Not terribly intimidating, right? But he'll speak as a dragon. What this means is he'll speak with authority and he'll speak with confidence. And he'll also speak with deception. This is what he's talking about. Notice one thing about this beast. What do all the other beasts have in common? Crowns. All the other beasts had crowns in common. This one does not have crowns, meaning the crowns were political beasts or political rulers. This is a spiritual ruler. Okay, Many people say that this represents what they call the false prophet. Okay, that's who we're being introduced here. This is going to be a spiritual leader, not a political leader. Revelation 13, 12 and 13, I'll just read this one to you. Describing this beast, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, his primary job, this beast, this false prophet, is going to be to convince people to worship the beast of the Antichrist. That's his number one job. So he will come forward for those who are left on earth who are struggling. I don't know if I should trust this guy. This one, kinder, gentler, very persuasive in his speaking, but powerful with his speaking, will convince people to follow the Antichrist. That's his job. Um, this kind of, this idea, you don't have to put it back up there. This idea completes what's called the unholy trinity. We know about the holy trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? This is the opposite of that or a counterfeit. We see, we see Satan constantly trying to counterfeit and pervert and twist just a little bit what God has done in an effort for people to go, well, it looks familiar. It looks familiar. It looks right. I think I can get behind that. But that's where the deception lies because he'll twist it just enough. So you see Satan being like, in this, in this uh, illusion here, he's like, Satan himself said, I want to be like the most high, right? So he's the father. Then we have the Antichrist, who is the, obviously the false Christ, leading people to his father. And then we see the beast, this beast, which is the false prophet, who his job is to testify about the goodness of the Antichrist. So we see just the opposite of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what we also see here is that for this first time, not, well, not the first time in history, political, military, and spiritual leadership will all come together under one head. And we've kind of seen some, some uh, precursors to that. If we go back to medieval times, we see when a lot of these kings would go to conquer other kingdoms, they would seek the church's authority to do that. They would seek indulgences from the Catholic church. They would, the first thing they would do, let's get the church on board before we go conquer this nation. So we see that even though the church was standing back and didn't really, they kind of trying to keep their hands clean, they were tacitly approving the things that were going on. And we see that as a shadow of the things that we're going to see coming to be here in, uh, as things reveal here. Revelation 13, 14, 15, 
says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So make an image. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this is an image of the Antichrist that will be built and actually set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Remember hearing something about the abomination of desolation? This is what's going on right here. If you go back to Daniel 11, verse 31, it says, Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortresses, uh, fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. This is that image of the Antichrist that is so powerful, it's even been animated. It even it talks and, and has power. People are going to see that, and they're going to start following that beast. So question, before we go any further, and I posted this on my Facebook page earlier in the week, the mark of the beast and the number of the beast. Same thing? Different things. Different? Okay. Same thing? Anybody think it's the same thing? A lot of people just generically go 666. That's the number of the beast. That's the mark of the beast. A lot of people just, that's it. And that's what they've been taught, and that's what they believe. They're actually very distinctly different things. Okay, and I'm going to explain to them, and this is where I'm asking you to be willing to maybe set aside some preconceptions. Don't go with what I say. Write down the scriptures, take notes, study it for yourself, pray about what the Lord reveals to you, because all of these things have at least two or three different possible interpretations, if not 20 or 30, depending on the scholar you talk to. But this is what my study points me to. Okay, Revelation 13, 16, 17. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Okay, very, again, very famous section of scripture there. We've heard that. Now, what this is kind of referring to, this, this idea of not being able to buy or sell unless you have the mark. Remember back in chapter 2 when we were seeing all these encouraging letters, if you will, to these churches, the seven churches. Remember the church in Smyrna? The church in Smyrna actually started out with the scripture saying, I know that you are poor, but you're rich. The reason that it was phrased like that is because they had refused, they had steadfastly refused to worship Caesar. And by doing so, they couldn't join a guild. And you had to, if you were going to hold a job down in Smyrna, you had to belong to a guild. So by saying, I will not declare that Caesar is Lord, I will not worship Caesar, you were then excluded from having a job. You could beg, but that was it. So that we see that as kind of a foreshadowing of what was going on here when, when the book of Revelation opened up. Keep that in mind, those letters to the seven churches, that we see those encouragements and sometimes those, those um, challenges to those seven churches, they weren't there by accident. 
Okay, they were there for a reason. We need to pay attention to that as we as we go a little bit further. But back to this, Caesar is persecuting Christians all over the place at this time. He's putting his image on currency. He's having people declare that he is Lord in order to hold a job, right? He has literally declared that he is deity. Anyone who does not worship the Antichrist at this time will starve. That's what they're saying here. There's all kinds of precedent for this marking, by the way. This isn't a new thing. We see this going all the way back to Moses, Exodus 13, 9. It says, and, they, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So that's a reminder of God's goodness, right? Maybe not a physical sign. Maybe it was. The prophet Ezekiel has kind of a similar warning about the temple desecration. Ezekiel 9.4, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations which are being committed in its midst. So that's exemption from judgment that's coming, a mark of that. Paul talks about a similar thing. Then in Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, that word seal is the same thing as the mark that we find in the, in the earlier, just the, the Greek versus the, the Hebrew versions. But again, we see this seal, something that God has always done to mark and protect his people as his we see Satan again twisting that. And so we see this mark of the beast thing coming around. So let's talk about some of these marks, what these potential mark of the beast might be. Let's show a couple of these slides. Does anybody think it's going to look like this? Could. There are a lot of people that think it's, it's a barcode kind of a thing. What about the next one? Now, this one's interesting because this goes along with somebody who studies numerology and has actually shown what they say, that if you study barcodes, the first in the red, in the middle, and then the end, those all represent the number six in barcodes. So every barcode they contend has 666 hidden in it. Unfortunately, if you understand anything about barcodes, that isn't even remotely true. What about this? Microchip implant. What about that? A lot of people think that, right? A lot of people even say, you know, the, the uh, chip in your, in your credit card, it's just a matter of time before that gets implanted under your skin and you don't even need the piece of plastic in your hand. That's definitely somebody. What about this next one? That's got the thing on the hand, that's got the thing in the credit card, and that's got the, the number on your forehead. So it could look like some of those, could look like none of those. So let's talk about it a little bit more. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Now, here's where I want you to pay attention. Okay, good, they took that down, so you'll pay attention. This again, I want to point out, and I'm not, hear me, I'm not saying the King James is better or worse or anything. It is just different, and you need to understand. A lot of people who think that it will be a chip implanted in your skin, or implanted in your forehead or something, point to this scripture, Revelation 13, 16, in the King James, which says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand 
or in their foreheads, okay? Now, if you know that I normally teach from the New American, New American Standard, why would I pull out this scripture from King James? Here's the reason. Let's look at this same scripture in the New American Standard. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. This is when we go back to the Greek translations and we look at what it was originally written in. And the word is undoubtedly without question on and not in. So, it teaches something interesting here. May or may not be interesting. I'm hoping it's interesting to you. First of all, that word mark is karagma. That's what it just translates to in the Greek. And karagma means an engraving or a brand. Okay? So it's not, it's not a, a spiritual mark. It literally switches to a tense of the word that means something that is applied to you. Okay, again, an engraving scratched into the surface or a brand like you would do to, a, to one of your sheep, right? This tells me that this is a literal mark that we're going to see. We're going to see a literal mark. It will be visible to anybody, okay, because you won't be able to do any business without it. It'll be visible to everybody. And here's the important thing. It won't be accidental. It won't be, oops, I've got a credit card with a chip in it, and I didn't realize until today that that was the mark of the beast. It won't be something like a, a, a safety chip in your pet, or even some kids are getting them now, so in case your child gets lost. I don't know that I agree with any of that, but it's happening. It's not going to be something that's going to be accidental. We will make a conscious decision to take this mark. Hear that, church. This is not accidental. Nobody's going to stumble in to taking the mark of the beast. You will make a decision to do it. Now, the reason those two scriptures are different, verse 16, and this, this, isn't, this isn't theology, guys. This is just interesting, okay? The time when the King James was written, okay, that, that translation was commissioned by King James, and it was written, 17th century England. Slavery was a huge part of their economy. It was very, very common. And what did slave, if anybody knows history, what did slave owners do to their slaves who were their property? They tattooed their name on their forehead. If you were a rich, influential slave owner in 17th century England, and they were doing a translation of the Bible that said, if your name is on somebody's forehead, you must be the Antichrist. You're not going to want that, right? So what they did is they petitioned the church of England at that time. Why don't we change that name, that word, from on to in? That way we can keep tattooing our slaves, and it doesn't imply that we are the Antichrist. Interesting historical note. Okay. So that's why it's different. Again, that's not theology. That's just, that's just a little bonus to you. I believe that we are going to see the literal name of the devil on people's foreheads. We see the literal name of Jesus written on people. Revelation 22.4, we'll get there soon. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Okay, now that may or may not be 
something spiritual. I, I've heard people say it's like uh, when you go to a bar. Anybody ever been to a I never have. But they stamp your hand with this infrared thing that you can only see under a certain light. It may be something like that. But I believe that it will be an unambiguous, unmistakable, not accidental mark that identifies allegiance with Satan. That's what I believe. Now, that's the, that's the mark. What about the number? What about the number of the beast? Revelation 13, 18 says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. It is number is 666. There is so much there that if you go to research it, you, you could get tied up in eschatology for forever. Here's what we know, though. The number, when it talks about the number of the beast and his number is, they're going back to this discipline called gematria, which is basically taking numbers and applying them to letters in the Greek and the Hebrew alphabets. Okay, they both, Greek and Hebrew both have numerical equivalents to the letters, okay? Always have. So when it says the number of the beast, it could well just be another, it's the name of the beast. Now, why would they say numbers? There's a reason, because they could very clearly just say, here's the beast, and this is his name. Why doesn't it do that? Anybody ever thought of that, or is it just me? First of all, we look at this, a number of a man. It says, it is the number of a man. So that could be, a computation used by man where it says you can compute the number. Maybe it's just using everyday math, you can compute it. You don't need anything supernatural. Maybe it means that. Does it mean that the number 666 represents less than perfection? Okay, because we saw the unholy trinity. They're slightly less. They're imperfect, whereas Father, Son, the Holy Spirit is the number of perfection is seven. So 777 would represent God's perfection, 666, is man's counterfeit of that. Could be. That's what some people argue. Is it a specific man? Is it even a specific man? It could be many men. Could be an idea. We don't know. Furthermore, is it 666? Or some people say it's 666, the number six repeated three times. That would make a big difference. Let me show you something interesting right here. It's a monster energy can. You see the Hebrew numerals right here. The numeral for six is that little symbol right there. Does that look anything like those three marks on the can? Okay, also, look at the O in monster. See that cross right there? Is that the mark of the beast on a can? Or is that somebody's? Yeah, if you drink that, don't. And then, of course, their slogan, unleash the beast. Interesting, yes. Mark of the beast, no. Just a clever marketing ploy, I think, for those people who want to look at that. I'm not suggesting you go out and drink monster energy. But it is not 3-6. It is very clearly 666 if you look at the translation. Some calculate this number to point directly at Emperor Nero. If you take that study and you go and you calculate that number of the beast using this discipline it points directly to Emperor Nero. Same people calculate it again, and it points to Emperor Domitian, who was emperor at the time that John wrote this. Some people calculate it and 
This one holds a little bit more weight with me, even though I don't necessarily put all my cards behind that, as the word Latinus, which means Latin king, which again points to the Pope of Rome. Some calculate that the name Balaam is 666, all of which can be proven. If you look through and you, and you study this out, everybody's got a way to calculate. Now, here's the thing. Some of it, it's written in Greek. So some of it, they take that and they translate it back to Hebrew. And then in the Hebrew, it amounts to that. Some of them take it, translate it back to Hebrew, and then translate it forward to Aramaic and then do it again. Depending on the different ways that you mix and match all these things, you come up with all these different names. In fact, um, some people say it's a combination of numbers that add up to 666. This is those people who said Barack Obama was the beast. Okay, they used that method. Okay, so you can make it say anything you want, but here's what I want you to know. This isn't, this isn't a game. This isn't a game like the Da Vinci Code, some kind of movie where, hey, if we just... If we just uncover the codex and we get the combination right, we're going to find out who. Scripture tells us, it doesn't say don't try, but it says use wisdom. Where does wisdom come from, church? Wisdom comes from God. It isn't our trying to figure it out. Wisdom comes from God, meaning it can be solved using spiritual principles, which generally means the Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. Okay? It means it can be figured out. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. That was the prophet warning his people of God's judgment when the invading Babylonians were coming. All these things that tie into the book of Revelation. Babylon... Babylon as I taught before, is symbolic of this pagan, idolatrous, rebellious people who really their true identity was a mashup of all kinds of different nations and peoples, right? The actual identity of who that is may not be known until sometime in the future, so why couldn't the identity of the beast be the same for now? Why couldn't it be a mashup of different people, different kingdoms, different things? I believe that when the time comes, we will be able to connect the dots. The Holy Spirit will show us. It will be unmistakable. It won't be a debate at that point, much like we saw a couple chapters ago where heaven was opened and revealed. The temple was revealed. No more secrets. We're going to see that when the time comes. Now, as I was praying about this, I thought back to when the thunder told John, I'm going to show you something, but I don't want you to write it down. Remember that? Maybe that was the identity of the beast. I don't know that. The mark of the beast, the number of the beast, who is it, what is it? Why are we left to wonder about this? Why is, uh, is this something that we struggle with? I believe it's so that we remain prayerful and vigilant and not try to figure it out in our own wisdom. It will cause us to even more press into the Holy Spirit to see what he reveals to us, and we will rely even more on him than trying to figure it out. Focusing all our efforts on trying to figure out who this is misses the point of this entire book, which is, what's the point of this entire book? Spend your time making sure you don't fall into the traps that Satan is going to plant for you so that when the time comes, 
you will be on the right side. Can I get an amen for that? I don't think it's going to be obvious pits of fire and marks of the beast. I think it's going to be much more subtle than that. And it's going to be some things we're even going through now. So go back to the very first chapters, the opening of the book of Revelation, when we see all these warnings and exhortations given to the seven churches. Remember that? That's how this whole thing opens up. Why is that? We're talking about all these things happen on, our, on earth. Persevere and you'll receive the crown. Persevere, persevere. It's coming your way. It's going to be bad, but persevere. Why does it start out like that only to go into then all these judgments? Remember what these churches were struggling with? They were given these pitfalls to avoid in order to receive the crown of life. Let's recap really quick. Number one, don't become prideful in your doctrine. In other words, your ability to figure things out. And yet forget to show grace and unity and love. That was the first one. The second one, don't conform to society in order to just gain favor or promotion in this world. Number three, don't take the idea of grace to the extreme and forget that there are consequences for our actions. Don't tolerate the Jezebel spirit and sins of the flesh in an effort to fit in and not make waves. Don't tolerate false teaching in the name of Christ. Don't pursue worldly wealth to the point of making it your idol. And don't place anything, including the church, above your relationship with Christ. I would say first and foremost, that's what it is. With these things in mind, so with, with that short list in mind, let's go back to reread from chapter 12, verse 11, the keys to defeating Satan through all this. Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. That last part is so commonly overlooked. They did not love their life. If you place your relationship with Jesus Christ and your place in eternal heaven above anything that could come at you on this earth, you're going to be okay. No matter what comes your way, if your priorities are right. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote this verse, I love this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Hmm. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. If our priorities are where they belong, not only will we be able to see counterfeits, not only will we be able to discern spiritual lies and imposters and counterfeits when they come our way, but we will know the author of our faith. We will know the one who can speak to us about what is true and what is not, and we will, church, not be vulnerable to accidentally stumble into partnering with Satan. Just like we need to make a choice that back in the times of John, you make a choice to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it could mean your death. But it's the death that leads to eternal life. When it really hits the fan and we see things come to the end, our faith in Jesus Christ is what's going to be the thing that gets us through this. It's not going to be through figuring out who it is. 
It's going to be faith in him and him alone. And so let's take some time to celebrate that right now. Worship team is going to play. Let's take communion together. Let's do it with a little extra emphasis, not just let's go through the motions because that's what we do now. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers, and you can serve yourself there. Or up front, Gabe and I will serve, and we have wine and bread and crackers. You just dip it in and take it that way. That's how we do that. We're supposed to do this in remembrance of him. But it's not just, oh, yeah, I remember Jesus. He was pretty cool. I want you to focus as we take communion here today on what it would be like without him. What would your life be like today without Jesus Christ in your life? Chaos at best. What's your eternal life going to be like without Jesus? Non-existent. So rather than to just think, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, he was a smart, he said a lot of good stuff, and I thank him for being my Lord and Savior. Let's be extra thankful as if, what if we didn't have Jesus? I don't know about you, but that makes me thankful. Amen, church? Thank you.
This is my story. 